made as we are in the image of God, is that we have a conscience. Our conscience is like one of those AWACS airplanes, those uh, radar crafts that pick up all signals and fly around in a particular area, monitoring it. Our conscience is like an AWACS airplane monitoring our mind and our will, our emotions, the experiences that we have in life. Vincent van Gogh said, a conscience is a man's compass. Victor Hugo said, conscience is God present in man. It was the justice of the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia, who said, more important than your obligation to follow your conscience, or at least prior to it, is your obligation to form your conscience correctly. Here's what Jesus said about the work of the Holy Spirit to forge our conscience, John 16, 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Hear the word of the Lord. What about our conscience? What kind of shape is your conscience in this morning? How does God work in our life by the Spirit with his word to, in fact, develop a tender, responsive conscience? I mean, scale of one to ten. Ten being a tender, responsive conscience. One being not responsive. Put the dipstick down and pull it out. Where are you registering this morning? Is our conscience running in a parallel track with the word of God and the promptings of the Spirit? Come with me to Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, there is a question posed and an answer given. Let's look at it, and then I want to read it to you. In looking at it, we'll discern the structure of the passage. We are going week by week, through this great explanation of the gospel given to us in the book of Romans. Now, Paul has been talking about the law of God. What is its purpose? How does God use it? And those who liked the law of God, the Jewish community in particular, they took umbrage with Paul's discussion. And so they throw out this idea. Oh, okay, Paul, I hear what you're saying. You're saying that the law is trash. It has no purpose. Isn't that their voice? He gives voice to that in the text. And he asks the question, verse 7, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? 
He answers it in verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So between that raising of the question, which is giving voice to what the critics said, all right, Paul, what are you saying? That the law is trash? No, he says, it's not trash. It has a useful purpose. Let me explain the purpose to you. That's verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Then he comes back in verse 12 and says, look, the law is holy, righteous, and good. So this morning, we're going to talk about the development of our conscience. And as we do, we're opening our hearts to the Lord and asking, what kind of shape is our conscience in this morning? Romans 7, 7 through 12. What then shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I have not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good hear the word of the lord now i want to go two different directions this morning first i want to look at paul's description of who we are before our conscience becomes alive unto god what it looks like before God begins to work in our conscience. And secondly then, we want to ask then, how does God develop our conscience? And we'll use uh, human gestation, pregnancy, as our analogy this morning, looking at the way God develops our conscience and brings it and brings us fully to Christ. That's our plan of attack. So first, who are we as our conscience lies dormant? Now, we're made in the image of God, the law of God written in our hearts, living in this world, dripping with evidence of God. His eternal attributes are clearly seen in what he has created. But what do we do? We suppress the self-evident truths about God that are revealed. That's Romans chapter 1. In 1 Timothy 4.2, Paul talks about some who get so far into their suppression of the truth that their conscience, in the insincerity of their lying, he calls it, their conscience becomes seared. So there are two aspects of Paul's explanation of, well, who are we when our conscience lies dormant and unresponsive before God? Two aspects of the explanation. First, A, we are, un, uh, we are alive to unconsciousness. 
There was, a moment, there was a moment before we came to Christ when we were absolutely unconscious to God. Or what the psalmist said in Psalm 36, 1, that Paul picks up and repeats in Romans 3, 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The operative consciousness that drives our living is not a consciousness of God. It's people with no thought of God or his standards, preoccupied with self in our own ambitions. We are just unconscious to God. My life was changed the first day of philosophy class in college, my junior year in college. I walked into class, and the teacher said, I want to take you to Plato's cave. Plato's cave? What in the world's Plato's cave? Plato used this analogy where he said, let's imagine that there's a cave that has a kind of a room in it as you walk into the cave, and there's a fire in that room in the cave. Let's call this, uh, uh, th this, this podium a person who's around the fire. But rather than, here's the opening to the cave right here. Here's the big cave room. Here's the wall in the back. Rather than sitting like this, looking out the opening of the cave and looking at the fire, what we normally do when we sit around the fire, these chaps in the cave, according to Plato, had their backs turned to the fire. Not unlike, let's say this is one of the chaps, those lights come down, and I can see the shadow of this lectern. And I can say to myself, there is the lectern. That's it right there. I can see it. That's it. But that's not it. This is the lectern. And so when the fire is gone, they have their back to the fire. What they were seeing on the wall was shadows of themselves. They'd move their arm and say, look, I'm moving my arm. Look, there's my head. But they were seeing but shadows. And so Plato said then, what philosophy is, philos, love, sophia, wisdom, two Greek words put together, the love of wisdom, philosophy, comes into the cave and tells the poor chaps, you're not seeing things as they really are. You think those shadows are real. Let's get out of the cave. And they walk out of the cave and look back and say, I can't believe it. I thought the shadows were what is real. What's real is that fire that I can now see. And I mistook the shadows for reality. They were thoroughly convinced that the shadows were reality. But as it were, according to Plato, philosophy takes them outside the cage and delivers them, disabuses them of these foolish notions that the shadows are real. They're not real, but we, they, we are convinced that they're real. Now, that's his argument for philosophy being good. Now, I, 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 my life was changed then because I realized that my small world that was very tidy and full of black and white and had no ambiguity was messed with the rest of the semester in philosophy class, and I realized I had convinced myself that that was true, looking at the shadows, when it wasn't true. And in the same way, 
we can cruise along in life and, and we're just totally unconscious to God and we can convince ourselves of what reality is made out of. It, it's those shadows there. And the Spirit of God begins to reveal God to us through the law of God. And it's like being taken outside the cave and being said, hey, look, that, you thought those shadows were real. Those weren't real. This is what is real. Most of humanity is blissfully unaware of the depth of our sin and the existence of God. We're captured by uh, the here and now and the bustle of everyday life and monkey around in the shadows when all the while God wants to reveal himself to us and does through his law, which is Paul's point here that we'll get to. Now, the second aspect of the explanation is this. We are dead to any ability to meet the law's demands. Look at verse 9 and 10. I was once alive apart from the law. Now, what in the world is he saying? He's saying this. You know what? I thought my life was really great. I was way okay. I thought when I didn't have any exposure to the law. But then the law came along. And shot right in the heart my convincing idea that I was way okay. I was once alive to my blissful ignorance before God, but then the law came along and woke me up, and I realized I was dead to God, unresponsive to Him, not being moved at all by His presence and His Word. For example, if you'd ask someone, and you, does your conscience bother you? What? Bother? I'm not bothered by anything. But then the law of God comes along and discloses, reveals, points out, convicts, awakens us to realities that we were not conscious to but existed before. And the agent that the Spirit of God uses in our life to accomplish that is the law of God. What God has said. Suddenly then, an awareness of sin dawns upon us. And then, coming with that dawning is an awareness of, oh, I can't do what I'm being asked to do in the law. I cannot keep the law perfectly. I am missing the mark, we are awakened to our powerlessness. So the first movement as God begins to move in our lives is we move from unconsciousness to God to an inability to obey what God has revealed for our good in the law. And it's a movement that starts. Within how does God develop the conscience and what is described here, let's think of it in terms of human gestation. Let's look at a couple of pictures. These are my favorite fetal pictures. You know, the little man, a little girl, sucking her thumb in the womb. It's just, just beautiful. And this, I like this one too. Grabbing hold of both feet. You know, that's good stuff there. Just... Uh, having a playful time in the womb. I think this is a picture from 25 weeks. I think there might be one more. I am told that the exhibit, I haven't seen it, at the Creation Museum, recently opened, fearfully and wonderfully made, is really worth seeing, and that it's a beautiful uh, heralding 
of uh, human gestation and the glory of what God does, what does the psalmist call it, in the secret parts of the earth, being fearfully and wonderfully made. Now watch the development of our conscience. We'll use that first trimester, second trimester, third trimester model there. Just as the infant, just as the fetus develops in the womb, so God works to develop our conscience. And the reason we bring this up is I want you to pull your conscience up next to the word of God this morning and ask, where am I? What's going on in my own heart? Three movements of God's development are conscience. First, the first trimester is the law of God is a light turned on in our conscience that exposes the presence of sin. We are unconscious to God. You know, we think we're alive, we're dead to God. But then the light is turned on and we suddenly become conscious of him and his standards But that sudden realization is not something wonderful. It's something very convicting, and we are brought up short. The first trimester, the law of God is a light turned on in our conscience that exposes the presence of sin. Look at verse 7. What do we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. If you'd asked this chap before this dawning happened, hey, are you a man who covets? Who, me? I don't have any coveting. And then along the way, he's exposed to the law of God. Do not covet. And when he read that, What the law did was turn the light on in his own heart to realize all manner of covetousness was present in his own heart. Not realize apart from the light being turned on by the law of God. This is the law of God's job description. Eric, what's it for? What does it do? It points out sin. It's not a means, as many believe, a means through which we find acceptance by God. Oh, Eric, I'm, I'm okay with God. Why are you okay? Well, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments. And, or, you know, I do unto others just as God, you know, God wants me to do as they, they do unto me. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm a good golden rule guy. Well, God's law was never given to obey so that we'd be accepted. Because you start rooting around in the law, and the first thing you realize is, I can't obey this. I'm a failure at obeying it. Now, there's a reason why that's so, and I'll get to that. But isn't it interesting that he starts with coveting? Now, the other sins are external to us. Coveting is internal and is rooted in the heart. And that inordinate desire is really behind a lot of other sins. The power of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. You see, the prohibitions awaken within us a desire to do the thing forbidden. Have you ever understood that? We all have a tendency to react negatively to any directive. Adam's children have deep streams of contra, it is called, suggestibility. We kind of prefer breaking the rules. In fact, we see a rule, it's like, you know what, let's let's just break that. 
There's a couple signs that do not fare well. One, indoors in a building, private, do not enter. Now that sign is an invitation, of course, for exploration. Many pay no attention to that, and their desire for exploring is actually incited by reading that sign. Here's another sign that doesn't do very well at all. You are forbidden to throw anything through this glass window. That usually doesn't turn out well for the glass window. Now, I went to Cedarville College, and I had a great time there. Andy and I did. Met her. That was the greatest time there. But uh, along the way, college students, you know, they, they enjoy life, enjoy those years. And for some reason, all the cool people, and I had my head down in the gym. I, did, I, I, I wasn't a cool person, apparently. But they got in this very sophisticated game that involved those old plastic uh, fake guns that had the spring in them, and you'd put the dart you know, you'd cock it and stick it down there, and then you'd, you'd pull the trigger, and it'd shoot out the dart, had a little rubber thing on the end. Well, everybody was carrying those, and I thought, what in the world's going on? And it was this super sophisticated, of all things, assassination game with very strict rules. And so it was, it was like, you know, uh, Jesus tag with a twist, you know, who's going to be the last one out? But anyway, um, so they'd walk around, and you, you, you were not allowed to shoot the person in the company of more than four people. So there were these sophisticated schemes to get them right to the place. And, and it started with a group of ten in somebody's dorm, you know, and then it just cascaded. Then you have, you know, 200 people playing the assassination game on campus, and it became quite a craze. And one night on dinner, some young man overcooked with piety and overcooked with how spiritual he was, he was really exercised about all this terrible stuff going on with this game on campus. And he just could have no more of it. So he stu- we're all eating in the cafeteria area. He stood up and gave a sermon right there spontaneously about all the evils of this horrible, terrible, no good assassination game. And it went on and on. And he got lathered up. He almost started whooping, you know, I mean, if you're into that stuff. And, and he, was, he was taking flight, and I could see the guy get up. I saw him. And it was this hilarious guy that played shortstop for the baseball team, and I saw him get up. And he was walking right toward the speaker. And, you know, the speaker is giving an impassioned plea. Do not play this game. You are killing each other. And what are we doing? This is terrible. It's awful. It's, uh, we're sitting. He pulls out his gun in front of him. He shot the guy right there in front of him. The whole cafeteria just erupted in laughter. And the reason they laugh is because everybody understands when you put up the sign, do not, there's a part of all of us that wants to do. Now, that's, that was a playful thing back in college. Isn't it true that we are all enticed by the forbidden fruit? Some argue this passage brings us to the garden and helps us realize we were there with Adam and Eve making the same choice. It's played out here. What we ought not do, we in fact do. The law stirs our disobedience. We are Adam and Eve breaking the law on Eden. We're the rich young ruler discovering covetousness in our own heart. The first trimester of God's development, this gestation of his work in our conscience And what's he doing in your conscience this morning? 
Would you find yourself in this process? The law of God is a light turned on in our conscience that exposes the presence of sin. But before it gets really, really better at the foot of the cross, it has to get worse. Second trimester is this. That light shows us sin's pervasive influence on our living. Please notice this phrase that's used twice. Seizing an opportunity. Verse 8. Seizing an opportunity. Verse 11. Verses 8 and 9. Let me read them to you. But sin, seizing an opportunity. How? Through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Sidebar, I thought I was pretty good. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died to the idea that I was pretty good. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. Now, I had friends, and at first I didn't understand what they were telling me. Uh, Valorous, World War II soldiers, if somebody told me, you know, and they're they're almost all gone now. If somebody told me, yeah, I I fought in World War II, I would ask them, hey, were you in Europe or you in Asia? And uh, if they were to say, well, I was in Europe, I'd say, okay, tell me where you were in relation to Normandy. And I had a few of them tell me, when they first started telling me, I didn't understand, oh, I was Normandy plus five. What? I was Normandy plus two weeks. I was Normandy plus one. And I thought, what in the world is that? What's that? They said, well, June 6th, V-Day, D-Day, plus one. That's the day I went in at Normandy. Or it would say, uh, I had one guy who was Normandy plus five. I said, well, what would you do, Roger? He said, well, just right behind the front line, I hung communication wire all across France. I was Normandy plus five. There was a beachhead established, and then from that beachhead, we all moved forward. Now, Eric, why would you offer that illustration? Because this verse with the word, verse five, aroused is a word used for an army establishing a beachhead from which they operate. Had a buddy in Afghanistan, deputy commander of the... uh, Let's see, I think it's the 82nd Airborne. He was seconded from special forces because that's how they had to fight in Afghanistan. And he took half of the 82nd Airborne that was deployed and took them up north. And they were in these places called FOBs, forward operating bases, where they'd set up a camp from which they would pursue the enemy from the camp. That's this word, aroused by the law. It's a warfare term for the establishment of a beachhead. This is what sin does in our hearts. It establishes a beachhead. Then pervasive influence grows. In that sense, sin is just like cancer, some cancers that are metastatic, that grow in our bodies. It ensues. Now, uh, the Russells will appreciate this. They're always all things, the Norse people at Northern Kentucky. Um, I wondered about the phrase, egg on. Now, if you've raised two sons, no doubt as parents, you've used the phrase, hey, don't egg him on. But I, I thought this week, what in the world does that mean, egg him on? What's that? Well, it's from a Norse word. It's Scandinavia, the Vikings. 
And it's the word, and there's probably, they probably know how to enunciate this. I don't. It's E-G-G-J-A. Exja. It means to incite or provoke. You think of the Vikings and what fighters they were. Don't egg him on. Well, there's a sense in which, you know what sin does in our lives? You know what the law does? The law eggs sin on. It's present. It has an established beachhead. And then we're egged on by the law of God until we wake up to who we really are and who we really need. And that's when Jesus is seen as most beautiful. 7-11, we come to see that sin has deceived us. One of the tragic experiences that falls out of sin is the fact that we get deceived. We can at the self-same time think that we are way okay with God when we couldn't be any more apart from him and in danger of his just judgment against our rebellion. But we can be alive to our unconsciousness and say, hey, I'm okay. The most tragic thing that will be tragic for all of eternity is to die convinced we are way okay with God and wake up before the judge of all the earth and find that we aren't. And that the law is just in condemning us for our sin. But remember, the law is like a wrangler on a horse moving the herd to our Lord. It's a tutor that brings us to the glory of the gospel. But we must understand its role. Sin deceives us. This is the word, lest I fear as the serpent beguiled Eve. That's the word in some English translations, 2 Corinthians 11.3. So you will be blinded from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word deceived used in Genesis 3.13. Eve was deceived. You You can be deceived. We can be deceived because of our sin. Oh, the tragedy of waking up in eternity to face the judge of all the earth. Deceived. Well, if the first trimester the lights turned on, if the second trimester we realize it's worse than we thought because sin has established an influential beachhead in our heart and might even be controlling us in ways that we've never been conscious to, The third trimester is this. God awakens us to his holiness and kills off our confidence in our ability to be accepted by God apart from Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. Think of sin and how we're gripped by it. And its practices become so, we come so at home with its practices, it, it kind of incites us. Augustine wrote about this principle of sin kind of, or the law of God inflaming our sin. Augustine in the 5th century wrote this, There was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night we rascally youth set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of the forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity, and that I I enjoyed to the full. 
What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden with the dim similitude of omnipotence? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. Thoughts about Romans 7 have been around for centuries. And they help us understand ourselves. God begins to awaken us to his holiness. And he kills off our ability to be accepted by God apart from Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life. Think Leviticus 18.5. If you obey this, you will live. It promised life, but for me, it didn't end up being a promise of life. What it ended up for me is being awakenness to death. My sin was real. I had broken God's law. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. We find we are dead to any ability to obey the law and be found acceptable. This is the conclusion everybody drew in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus got to Matthew 5.48. They're waiting on the edge of their seats. And then he says, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And everybody listening said, oh. If that's the standard, I cannot save myself. That's when they were ready to see Jesus. For who he is. When we get here in development, we are ready to embrace Jesus Christ. Why? Because we come to see him as our only hope to be saved from our sinful selves. And what a hope there is in knowing Jesus Christ. That's when we come running to Jesus for salvation. Now, where are you this morning? Do you need to run to him this morning? Do you have the assurance of your salvation? Has the law of God been used in your heart to awaken you to who you are? It's who all of us are apart from Jesus. Condemned. A sinner. And here's Jesus. A beautiful Savior. Willing to forgive. Ready to give us the gift of righteousness. Ready to infuse our hearts with hope. Do you need him this morning? The best seven minutes and 18 seconds of this week, I looked on the phone and saw how long we had talked. Indy and I, uh, we called a friend who's in hospice in Michigan. When our kids were young, he and his wife loved our kids and just built into them. We had so much fun at the Richie's house. Well, uh, Bruce is dying. Andy saw it, and she figured out how we could get a hold of him. We called him. And uh, we got through. We had such a sweet conversation. And he's a joyful follower of Jesus. A happy man while dying with full confidence. I was really edified in talking to him. And he said to me, Eric, Andy, I'll see you in heaven. We'll see each other again. And he said it not because he was some, some pious gasp at the end of the way, but For him, nothing was more true than the promise of God offered in Jesus Christ. Will you die like that? Are you living like that? Has God brought you here this morning? The law bearing down on your conscience. 
showing what's real. It, it, what's in your heart is in all of our hearts. How we need Jesus. And he's available. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. I invite you to throw yourself on Jesus Christ. Come to rely upon him. There's three trimesters of development for the conscience. The light is turned on. We see sin's pervasive influence. And it brings us to the beauty of Jesus Christ. Our only hope of salvation. I loved basketball growing up. Uh, and my perception of myself as a player changed along the way. I grew up next to a five-acre plot. A lot of it was pasture land. And the guy poured a cement full court right in, in the middle of the pasture. And I spent most of my growing up years playing on that court. And I played so much and practiced so much that before long, uh, according to me, the best player on that court was uh, me. <laughs> I could take down anybody from Park Ridge Acres. But then in fifth grade, I went to Boone Station School and merged in with a whole other crowd. And my perception of myself changed as I played fifth and sixth grade basketball. Because there's some bigger, stronger kids from Lindare Acres and other places. And so I worked, and by the time I was in the eighth grade, I thought to myself, I'm the best basketball player from Boone Station School. So much so that when I got to high school, Green and High School, uh, I just bagged the fresh tryout for the freshman basketball team. I went to the reserve coach and said, hey, I, I want to try out for the reserve team. He said, you do? I said, yeah, I, I'm going to make your team. So I tried out, and at the end of that, he said, Mount, you, go, you better go back down. You know, it's not working here. So I went down, and, and they almost cut me from the freshman team. I sat the bench for most of the year, just embittered the whole, the whole time, just rotting on the bench. Finally, at the end of the year, got into a few games, did okay. And I was determined I'd kill myself and, Worked up, and it got to the point where by the time I was a senior in high school, well, there's some thought, including me mostly, that uh, I was the best kid at Green in high school. And uh, my junior year, I made all-conference. There were four guys that went uh, D1 out of our conference. It was really an intense conference my junior year. And we were 17-2 and two my junior year, too, by the way. We won two, and we lost 17. It was a very, very <laughs> tough year. <laughs> But by the time I graduated my senior year in high school, I thought, you know, I'm pretty good. I don't think anybody at Greenland is better than me, and I've been recognized as most valuable player in the conference. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm it. I, I, I'm good. But at every level, the calculus was changing and moved. I got to college, and uh, same thing. Got to my senior year, and some thought, mostly me, that I was the best player there, and, you know, and... Most favorite player in the conference, all-district player of the year, all-American. I thought, you know, this is really, I made it. And um, there was a kid that it was in our conference that got drafted in the fifth round uh, into the pros my junior year, and I was convinced I was going to be drafted, of course. But uh, uh, I went to Australia in the summer of 1980 with an all-star team from the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics, and I thought, man, you know, I'm good, best Cedarville's ever had, you know, and here, you know, this is really great, and this is really important. And I couldn't believe how great these guys were I was with. We started out with a week of exhibition games, and I could hardly, I mean, I, I played awful. And they were just playing like they were in the NBA. You know, I mean, they're just fantastic players. And I thought to myself, you know what? Good basketball players in America are a dime a dozen. Who cares, you know? But at every level, 
it seemed that the, uh, the metric changed. And every time I thought I was here, or there was some exposure to somebody who was here, and finally it dawned on me that uh, I was not going to be the greatest basketball player on earth who ever lived. Because there were higher standards. This is the law of God. This is what he does. We can think we're pretty good. We can think we're all right. We think we're fine with God. And God just puts his arm around. That's what he's talking about here. And he uses the law of God as our tutor. So is the law bad, inciting sin? No, the law is great. Because the law brings us inexorably to collapse at the foot of Jesus. And say, what a wonderful Savior who brings us, notwithstanding our sin, which he forgives, to a position in which there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. What a Savior. What a glorious gospel. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to take the law of God and run with it through the assembly this morning. Awaken us. Turn the light on. Turn the light on to its pervasive influence. But, oh God, don't leave us there in hopelessness. Shine the light on Jesus, who is himself the light of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, for those whose conscience has moved this morning, open their heart to you. Rush in with your grace. Hear their prayers of repentance. Hear their expressions of faith as they reach out with the arms of their soul to receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for sinful people to be redeemed, to not wallow in their sin and be ruined, but to be forgiven and come to have a future and a hope and a great Savior. We love you. Speak to our hearts. Hear us pray to you. Hear us sing. Don't let us go home unaffected by the work of your word, by the Spirit in our hearts, showing us the beauty of Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, I pray that you'd help us to be responsive to you. 